This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The Apostle Paul wants us to do a sermon series like the one we're in. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says, says this, and whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think about these Things. Now, when, when Paul uses the terms noble and right, we might think that he's merely recommending high and inspirational thoughts in general. Um, but that's not the case. He's not referring to general loftiness, uh, general loftiness of mind, but rather to specific teaching of the Bible. And Paul writes that gives that list, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's noble, was pure. Think about those things he's referring to teachings of the scriptures, things like God, sin, Christ, the world, human nature, God's plans for the world, the plan of salvation. And Paul is saying that if you want peace, think long and hard about the core doctrines of the Bible. If you want peace, think long and hard about the core doctrines of the Bible. That's what we're doing. That's what Theological Boot Camp is about. It's an application of Philippians 4. Now, last week we pondered deeply the holiness of God, which really serves as part one, with uh, today serving as part two. And today's topic is the love of God. The holiness of God, the love of God cannot be pulled apart. They cannot be pulled apart. Holiness results when you love the right thing in the right way to the right degree. Love and holiness are intertwined. They cannot be pulled apart. Now take a look at this, uh, these two statements. God is love. Love is God. Okay? Take a look at those two statements. God is love. Love is God. I believe the juxtaposition of those two statements summarizes the fraying taking place within the broader Christian community. The implications of this are are quietly, maybe even invisibly enormous. Enormous. Think about it with me. God is love or love is God. When God's word says, 1 John 4, 8, God is love, it is not saying there is this thing out there called love and God measures up to it. That's not what it's saying. There is no external standard of love to which God is accountable. In fact, there was no existing definition of love that existed before God's love. God himself provides the essence and definition of love. So if it was possible, dictionary writers ought to study God first, 
Dictionary writers ought to study God first, then provide a definition of love. The opposite is what happens. And it happens within the church as well. We, as a result of our fallen nature, possess a perpetual drift towards self-declaration. And the result, one of the results, is autonomous definition writing. We come up with our own understanding of things and then pronounce them good. Such is the case with the concept of love. We are prone to have a natural drift towards making up our own definition of love. And once we've done that, we are then positioned to say things like, well, as long as they aren't hurting anyone, we should accept. Or, if God is loving, then surely he wouldn't. But notice what's happening. Our definition of love, we've come up with, and we're holding God accountable to it. Or more precisely, we have come up with our own definition of love and we are now molding our understanding of God around it, which is the essence of idolatry. Love, our concept of it, our definition of it, has become God, lowercase g. Because our culture finds it relatively easy to believe that God is a God of love, we have developed notions of God's love that are disturbingly spongy and sentimental and almost always alienated from the full range of attributes that make God God. So that means that when we think of God's love, we need to think of all his other attributes simultaneously. We need to think of his holiness, his truthfulness, his glory, and all the rest. We need to think through how all of them work together all the time. Remember, God is not a shapeshifter. He's not a shapeshifter. He's not holy in one moment while his love lies dormant, and then the next moment he's loving while his holiness lies dormant. All of his attributes actively work simultaneously. So it's helpful in that regard to remember that every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord is loving and holy simultaneously. Every action God takes, every action you see him take in the scriptures is loving and holy simultaneously. Now the remedy to to this tendency we have to generate our own definitions of love is pretty straightforward. We have to go before the God of the universe and we have to ask him to tell us what he's like. Which is what we've been doing. This is what we've been doing in Theological Bootcamp. We'll continue to do that. We need to ask him to define himself for us and through that define for us what love is. And the answer may surprise us. So the purpose, for the purpose of our time together, I'd like you to make an assumption. Assume your understanding of God's love is wrong. Just for the sake of our time together, assume that your understanding of God's love is wrong. Erase the whiteboard and let's start over, okay? Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the five senses of God's love. Briefly, I'm going to look at correcting Christian cliches, and we're going to look at God's love in Jesus. The five senses of God's love Correcting Christian cliches and God's love in Jesus. First, 
the five senses of God's love. God's love. When you hear that phrase, ask a follow-up question. What do you mean by God's love? Because what's very interesting, very interesting, is that the scriptures do not talk about God's love in exactly the same way all the time. God's love is not flat. It's multidimensional. And I think, as we look at the scriptures, we can detect five different ways the Bible speaks about God's love. Five senses of God's love. Five different ways the Bible speaks about God's love. Here's the first. The love God has for himself. The love God has for himself. Remember, our God is a tripersonal God, not a unipersonal God. Our God exists in three persons, one essence, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Bible explicitly talks of the love the Father has for the Son and the the love the Son has for the Father. For example, in Matthew's Gospel, twice we read, this is my beloved Son. This is the Father speaking of his Son. This is the Son I love. The Father loves the Son. John's Gospel is especially rich. In this theme, John chapter 3, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And in the context, the the Father is saying to the world, you all must honor my Son because of this. So there's a God-centeredness to the tripersonal God. There's a God-centeredness to God. John chapter 5, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So this is not a love that developed at some point within the tripersonal community of God. This is a love that has always existed. Always existed. Now, the love is also reciprocated. Jesus loves the Father. John 14, Jesus explicitly says, I love the Father. And why Jesus goes to the cross is, first of all, because he loves his Father and does his will. It's really impossible to overstate the affection the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. God loves God. Now, as one Hollywood actor put it, this seems to be about ego. Is God egomaniacal? Well, that assessment would work if we're talking about another human being. To love oneself sounds like vanity. But we're talking about God. God is not a souped-up version of us, completely other to us. I mean, think about it. Once, there was only God. For trillions of And trillions and trillions of years, if we can speak of infinity in that way, there was only God. And he was infinitely happy. That is what we would call ultimate reality. I'm better than everybody else deserves to be on his business card. 
The moment we stack up the infinite, transcendent, omniscient, holy God against any human character to accuse God of being an egomaniac is just plain silly. John Piper puts it this way, God must love and delight in his own beauty and perfection above all things. For us to do this in front of the mirror is the essence of vanity. For God to do it in front of his son is the essence of righteousness. Jesus said this is the essence of righteousness. The moment he said loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment. So one sense of God's love is this, the love that God has for himself. God is love. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Second sense of God's love is God's general love over all that he has made. God's general love over all he has made. Now, by and large, the Bible veers away from using the word love when describing this particular sense of God's love. But the word doesn't need to be used to talk about it. Jesus, time and again in his parables, talks about the grace of God without ever using the word grace. But the theme of God's general love for all he has made is not hard to find, right? God creates everything, and before there's a whiff of sin, he pronounces that all he has made is good. This is the product of a loving creator. And then Jesus depicts a world in which God clothes the grass of the field, with the glory of wildflowers. Seen by no human being, perhaps, but only by God. The lion roars and hauls down its prey, but it is God who feeds the animal. The birds of the air find food, but that's a result of God's loving providence. And not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the sanction of the Almighty. It is God who causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on all of humanity. And without either of those, life would cease to exist. So if this is not loving providence, then the point that Jesus drives home, that that God can be trusted to provide for his own people, would be incoherent. So in this sense, God's love is simply the many good provisions he has made for life to thrive On this planet, the many ways in which he actively sustains the flourishing of life on this planet. All human beings, to one degree or another, are beneficiaries of this sense of God's love. There's a third sense to God's love God's salvific stance toward this fallen world. God's salvific stance toward this fallen world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. We're going to look at this passage in a minute. The term world in John's gospel doesn't refer to the world in all its bigness so much as to the world in all its badness. It refers to humanity and culpable rebellion against God. John 3.16 is to be admired not so much because God's love is extended to so big a thing as the world as to so bad a thing as the world. Not to so many people, but to so wicked people. But however much God stands in judgment over the world, he also presents himself as the God who invites and commands people, all human beings, to repent. He orders his own people to carry the gospel to the farthest corner of the world, proclaiming to men and women everywhere. In Ezekiel, this is what God says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, 
I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So the very first, and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, by the way, Mark's gospel, are a demonstration of this kind of love. When he entered Galilee, what did he say? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come. What does he say? Repent and believe the gospel. So God shows his love with this inviting, yearning plea for people to repent, going to such a degree as to send his son into the world to see that that happens. A third sense of God's love. God is love. Well, what do you mean by love? What do you mean by that? God's love for himself, God's general love over creation, his salvific yearning sense toward the world to repent and to to come to Jesus. We're not done yet. We got two more. The fourth sense is God's particular selecting love toward his elect. Now, the elect may be the entire nation of Israel or the church as a body or individuals. In each case, God sets his affection on his chosen ones in a way he does not set his affection on others. Let me show you the passages. Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And again, Deuteronomy chapter 10, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. What's striking about these passages and related passages is that when Israel is contrasted with the universe or with other nations, the distinguishing feature has nothing to do with their personal or national merit. The distinguishing feature has nothing to do with their personal merit or their national merit. It has to do with God's love. In the very nature of the case, then, God's love is directed toward Israel in these passages in a way that it is not directed toward other nations. Now, this way of speaking of God's love is unlike uh, the other three ways that we've looked at so far of speaking of God's love. Why? Because there is a discriminating feature of God's love that surfaces here and in other places. For example, you've got Malachi chapter 1. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is God speaking. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, <laughs> allow all the room you like for the Semitic nature of, the, of, of this contrast. But observing the fact that the absolute form can be a way of articulating absolute preference. Yet the fact is that God's love in such passages is peculiarly directed towards the elect. The New Testament is similar. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So just as a husband's wife, love for his wife is, per, is particular and selective in comparison to his love for other women, so is God's love for believers in comparison to those who are not united to Christ. God is love. What do you mean by God's love? Let's look at one more sense, one more way in which the Bible talks about God's love, God's conditional love for his people. 
this sense doesn't have to do with how we become followers of Christ, but with God's love for us once we do become followers of Christ. Okay? Not so much how we become followers of Christ, but God's love for us once we do become followers of Christ. Jude 21, keep yourselves in God's love. It's an imperatival command directed towards God's people. And this leaves the unmistakable impression that someone might not keep themselves, him or herself, in the love of God. Now, clearly, this is not God's a general love and care for creation. It's pretty difficult to escape that. Nor is this God's yearning love, uh, reflecting his salvific stance toward our fallen race. Nor is it his eternal elective love. If words mean anything, one does not walk away from that love either. Now, Jude is not the only one who speaks in these terms. Keep yourselves in the love of God, as though there is a condition attached to it. Jude's not the only one who does this. Jesus himself speaks this way. He commands his disciples to remain in his love. John 15, 9, and then he adds in verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. A passage of scripture familiar to many of us also places a condition on it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good, don't stop reading there, of those who love him. It's conditioned. He does indeed work all things out for the good of those who love him, not those who don't. Now, this isn't a New Testament phenomenon only. Maybe the most famous Old Testament passage, the Ten Commandments. God is speaking to his people. He's saying, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's conditioned. Psalm 103 is the same thing. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. You see how subtle this is? Five different ways of talking about God's love. See how subtle it is? Inevitably, at this point, one starts asking how these five ways about talking about God's love fit together. How do all these ways of talking about God's love, how do they all fit together? It's, it helps to think, even though human analogies break down at some point, it is helpful, you know, illustrative, to think in terms of human analogies. One writer thinks it through like this. He says, I could say with a straight face, I love riding my motorcycle, I love woodwork, and I love my wife. But if I put all three together in the same sentence too often, my wife will quite understandably be not pleased. They really all have different weight. Or again, I can say, I love my children unconditionally. I have a daughter in California who works with disadvantaged kids. If instead she became a hooker on the streets of LA, I think I would love her anyway. She is my daughter. I love her unconditionally. 
I have a son who's a Marine. If instead he started selling heroin on the streets of New York, I think I'd love him anyway. He's my son. I love him unconditionally. Yet in another context, when they were just kids learning to drive, if I said to one of them, make sure you're home by midnight, and they weren't, they faced the wrath of dad. In that sense, my love was quite conditional on their obeying me and getting the car home on time. In other words, despite the fact that we are dealing with the same kids, same dad, (laughs) the different contexts change the use of the love language. It was not that my love for them in one sense became less unconditional, for there's a framework in which that love remains constant. But there can be another framework where agreements and family responsibilities prevail, or in biblical terms, covenantal obligations. And here, the dynamics change somewhat. Now, with that, armed with that, let's think through briefly Christian cliches. Correcting two Christian cliches. I'm going to do this briefly. When someone says to me, God's love is unconditional, my first reaction is to ask a clarifying question. What do you mean by that? Hopefully you see by now it's a helpful question to ask. Now, surely God's love is unconditional. Surely that's true, in the fourth sense of God's love with respect to selecting, uh, his selecting love for the elect. But it's certainly not true in the fifth sense. God's discipline of his children, uh, that he may turn upon us with the, 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 the divine equivalent of the wrath of a parent on a wayward teenager, that's not unconditional. Let's, let's get down to street level for a minute. To cite God's love is unconditional to a Christian who's drifting towards sin may convey the wrong impression and do a lot of damage. Such Christians need to be told that they will remain in God's love only if they do as he says. So hopefully you see why it's pastorally important, practically important to know what passages and themes apply to which people at a given time. Or another Christian cliche, God loves everyone the same. Well, it's certainly true of the passages belonging to the second category of God's loving providential care for his creation. Both Hitler and Billy Graham were equally loved in this regard. They were beneficiaries of God's love manifested in rain and sun and the plethora of benefits that it brings. But it's not true in the fourth sense of God's love because he sets his affection upon some and not others. So what I want to do to conclude is, if you have your Bibles, get them open to John 3. God's love in Jesus. Look at God's love in Jesus. The Bible does not talk about God's love in exactly the same way all the time. There are distinguishing features to God's love. Paying attention to the way the scriptures talk about that is important. But let's look at this famous passage from John 3. I'll bring out a couple of points and then we'll, we'll close. John 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whatever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. God's love in Jesus. Look at a couple of things. First, in the Bible, it is astonishing that God loves us. In the Bible, it is absolutely astonishing that God loves us. Now, by and large, this is not the way we think. But the Bible delights to marvel at God's love. Now, the reason we don't think this way, the reason we don't think it is simply astonishing that God loves us is twofold. First, not only do we think that God ought to love us, but he especially ought to love me because I'm nice and neighborly and maybe even cute. I don't beat up on people. I'm a decent person. Of course God will love me. What's not to love? But this is so far removed from the storyline of Scripture. We have to think that one out again. Ron Weider puts it this way. God's love for us, he he illustrates God's love for us by imagining uh, a dating couple walking on the beach. It's at the end of the academic year. The sun has made the sand warm. They kick off their sandals. They, they, uh, they feel the, the wet sand squish between their toes. He takes her in hand and he says to her, Sue, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, he could mean a lot of things. He may simply mean that his hormones are jumping and he wants to get into bed with her. But the least he means is that he's attracted to her. He certainly does not mean that he finds her unlovely but loves her anyway. When he says, I love you, he is in part saying that he finds her lovable. And if he has any sort of romantic twist, this is when it should come out. Sue, the color of your hair, your eyes, I could just sink into them. The smell of of your perfume, the dimples when you smile. There's nothing about you I don't love. Your personality is so wonderful. You're such an encourager. You have this laugh that can fill a whole room with smiles. It's so contagious. Sue, I love you. And what he does not mean is this. Sue, quite frankly, you're the most homely creature I know. Your bad breath could stop a herd of rampaging elephants. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. You have the personality of Genghis Khan. You don't have any sense of humor. You're a miserable, self-righteous, narcissistic, hateful woman, and I love you. (laughs) When he declares his love for her, in part, he is declaring at that moment he finds her lovely. Now God comes along. He showers his love on us. By loving us, what is God saying? You all, I love you. Your scintillating personality, your intelligent conversation, your wit, your gift, your cute. I love you. I can't imagine heaven without you. Is that what God is saying? 
When God declares his love for us, is he commenting on our lovableness? There are a lot of people who believe so. In fact, there are a lot of people who say, well, if God loves us, that must mean I'm okay. You're okay. I'm okay. God says we're okay. He loves us. We must be lovable. Biblically, that's a load of nonsense. As I mentioned before, the word world in John's gospel typically refers not to a big place with a lot of people, but to a bad place with a lot of bad people in it. The word world in John's gospel is human-centered, this human-centered created order that God has made and has rebelled against him in hatefulness and idolatry, resulting in broken relationships, infidelity, and wickedness. If we want to be blunt about it, there's an entire book devoted to showing us we are whores and God is a faithful husband who refuses to leave us even though we spend each night prostituting ourselves in the red light district. But the text says, God so loved the world. This broken and fallen world. It's as if he's saying to us, morally speaking, You are the people of the crippled knees. You are the people of the moral bad breath. You are the people of the rampaging Genghis Khan personality. You are hateful and spiteful and murderous. And you know what? I love you anyway. Not because you're so lovable. But because I'm that kind of God. Do you see that the more you feel a need to think of yourself as lovable, the less exhilarating and astonishing the love of God is going to be? Do you also see the corollary is true? The more unlovable you perceive yourself to be, the more exhilarating and astonishing the love of God is going to be. Second, the measure of God's love for us is Jesus. Not only does the Bible like to delight in God's love for us, to marvel at the fact that God would love us, but we're shown the measure of God's love, and it's simply in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Question, what did it cost the father to give his son? Think for a moment about the first sense of God's love. The infinite love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father enjoyed throughout eternity past making one another infinitely happy. What does it cost a God like this to give his Son to and for the benefit of unlovable people? We don't have a corresponding analogy. The closest we can come is our own children, parents. Would you gladly give your child so those who dislike you could be spared death? It almost sounds ridiculous. Yeah. The ridiculous love of God. In his ridiculous love, the father gives us his son. The father delights in his son. And are you ready for this? 
When we are united to Christ, the Father delights in us too. Not because he finds us lovely, but because he finds his son lovely. And our lives are now hidden with Christ, united to Christ. I'll conclude with an illustration. Thomas Goodwin was a 17th century English pastor, theologian, chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. Goodwin describes how the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, tells the story of Adam and Christ as if they were the only two beings to exist in the world. This is how Paul divides the human race. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And he pictures all of the human race, the billions of people who have ever lived, hanging on either belt attached to Adam or the belt attached to Jesus. The billions of people who have ever lived, we are all either hanging on the belt of Adam or the belt attached to Jesus. Visualize this. It's a little out there, but visualize this. So he imagines two great giants, bigger than Paul Bunyan. Giants. One called Adam, the other Christ. Each is wearing an enormous leather belt with billions of hooks on it. You and I, and all humanity, are hanging on either Adam's belt or Christ's belt. There is no third option. And God the Father interacts with and deals with us, not directly, but only through Adam or through Christ. If you're hanging on Adam's belt, you share in the experience of Adam. You share in the experience of sinful, fallen Adam, and your entire relationship with God is through him. But if you're hanging on Christ's belt, all of God's dealings with you are through Christ. Now listen, picture this. When you receive Jesus as Savior, when you confessed with your mouth that he's Lord and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you were involved in a massive and momentous transfer. The Almighty God himself unhooked you from Adam's belt and hooked you onto Christ's belt. So now you have a different representative. You have passed from Adam to Christ. Visualize the two giant figures and you hanging from the belt of Adam. Now picture you being lifted by the hand of God from Adam's belt and being attached to the belt of Christ, never to be removed. Consider for a moment the fact that God delights in you with the love he has for his son in whom you are now loved. God the Father loves the Son from and for all eternity. He loves him perfectly, completely, with an immortal love. He delights in him with an infinite delight. The Father has plucked you out of Adam and made you a new creation in his Son. This means that the Father loves you with the same perfect, complete, immortal love he has for his Son. He delights in you with the same infinite delight that he has for Christ. And he did this not because he found you lovely or delightful, because because he's this kind of God. Consider the delightfulness of the son to the father. The father's love for the son. Consider this. 
and you yourself enveloped within it. We are not born beautiful. God finds us naked and wallowing in our own bloody mess. All beauty we have, we have from him. It's his clothing, his jewelry, his crown. Consider yourself as you would be outside Christ. Now reflect on what it means for you to be hidden with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you found us cast off in a pool of blood. We were naked and unloved. You picked us up. You commanded us to live. You clothed us. You took us as your bride. You adorned us with the jewels of your son. You made us beautiful in him. We stand perfect in your sight because you have enfolded us in his beauty, given him our filth, and wrapped us in his obedience. We praise you for your kindness to us in Jesus. We marvel to find ourselves loved with your love for him an overflowing, eternal, perfect love. We offer our thanks, our service, our obedience, and our worship to you now. Through Christ our Savior. Amen.